I'm glad you've joined us today. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 all the way into chapter 1, verse 1. And so uh, this morning, I want to just start with a question. Have you ever um, had a super high expectation of someone only to have that smashed against a rock of reality? Uh, there's a saying that goes around that says, uh, never meet your heroes. Now, why is that? Uh, because a lot of times whenever we meet these people, we find out that they're just people like us. They're not really as heroic as what we thought they were. They they seem to be just average. They have flaws. They're broken, just like you and I. And so that, that idea of being a, a hero is kind of dashed for us because we find out they're really just a person like we are. Now, the disciples that we are going to see today, they have an expectation of Jesus that is going to get smashed against the rock of reality, against the reality of Jesus' mission, of the mission that Jesus has been on for uh, all of eternity. Now, they had really high hopes that they'd be involved in a physical kingdom with Jesus in the very near future. They they were spreading this good news that the Messiah, the, the Chosen One, the Christ is here but they're going to find themselves in a place where they did not expect. They're going to find themselves in the very near future as not parts of the king's cabinet, but actually running from him. But here in this text we're going to look at today, they, they're going to come encounter with a very rude awakening. And this is where the, the title of today's message comes in, and that's God's Way. And they're going to discover what God's way is, God's way with who the Messiah is and how the Messiah is going to come about, but also what God's way is in following Jesus and what does that mean. And so today we're going to look at this text that we have in kind of two different sections. We're going to look in verses 31 through 33 first of all, and then we'll take chapter um, uh, verse 34 into chapter 9 verse 1 as a second section. And so let's uh, read this together here, verse 31 through 33. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Now, there's a transition that's happening here again. We've seen this happen a couple times through Mark so far, but here's another major transition that's taking place in Mark's writing in this recording of what Jesus is saying and teaching. There's a transition of his teaching and his focus from not just who he is as Messiah, but to how the Messiah will live and how the Messiah will play out. And this is part of the confusion that sets in is the disciples have this idea, this expectation that is, again, very high of Jesus, and that rightfully so. But again, it's going to be smashed against what Jesus has to say about how he will be the Messiah. And this is a very important transition that's taking place here in Mark's gospel and Mark's writing. And we will see the struggle that's there for the disciples of what do you do with this? What do you do with this fact that this Messiah is not what I think him to be? Now, if you look there in verse 31, 
it, it tells us that Jesus titles himself as the Son of Man. This is what he began to teach them. This is a title that Jesus used very often with himself, the Son of Man. It's a title that was uh, really made famous by King David back in the Old Testament. David used this term quite often to refer to himself. And so here, the disciples, as they would hear this term, the Son of Man, they would probably instantly connect in their mind Jesus with David. And they would think, well, Jesus is going to be a lot like King David. This is what the Messiah is going to look like. This is what he's going to do. He's going to take back the land from the invaders, from those those nasty Romans. And he's going to have a, a righteous kingdom built. But King Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, to tell them that he's not going to be like David. That he is not going to bring about his kingdom like David at all. That actually his kingdom is going to be initiated by his death. And again, this would be so hard for them to understand. This concept of the Son of Man, the one that's supposed to be like David, is now going to go and die? They'd be so confused. They would hear these words and, and reject them, and this is what we see happening with Peter, isn't it? The next word that follows that, the Son of Man, it says must. The Son of Man must. Now what does the word must mean? Well, it means it has to happen. There's no other way. It is a necessity, isn't it? When we say something is a must. Now, <clears throat> when Jesus is teaching his disciples about this, he's telling them that he must suffer. He's telling them that there's no other way, that this is the only way that this can happen. There is no other plan. This is the only plan that is there, and it's one that involves suffering. But this plan, it did not originate just recently in Jesus' life. It wasn't that Jesus started his ministry and then kind of figured out, put the put two and two together about what the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to do with Jesus. He said, well, you know, I'm probably going to end up dying. No, this was not the recent plan. This was the plan from all of eternity. Peter preaches this idea in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. John writes something very similar in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where he writes this, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The death of Jesus was a predetermined path that was planned before the foundation of the world in order to save humanity from their sins. This was not an isolated event in history, but all of history was built to this point, and all the future is built upon this point. And so everything that we have from the beginning of Genesis 1-1 to the very end of Revelation, we have all of the Bible and all of our current history, it's centered around this moment with Jesus and what Jesus is telling his disciples is going to happen. And it had to happen this way, or there's no way for us to be saved. It is. It was not only planned out this way before the world began, but God had been repeatedly telling the people of Israel that this is what would happen with the Messiah. And one of the, the largest sources of this truth is from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah 53 talks about this suffering servant. We have all kinds of other places throughout the, throughout the Old Testament scriptures that point to this as well. So Jesus tells them that he will be rejected by all the religious establishment, by the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the elders. They are all going to reject him, and it's going to ultimately lead to his death. But this is not the only prediction which he makes about uh, what's coming in the future. He also shares with them that he is going to be resurrected from the grave. 
And it's only going to mean a short time, three days. And so this prediction that Jesus gives them, it doesn't just end with a, a, a period, but it's, it's leading to something else. It's leading to the, the, the display of the power of God. And Jesus is going to be displaying that. Now in verse 32, it says, And he said this plainly. Now, I love this opening sentence of verse 32 because Jesus doesn't talk to his disciples with parables or some other format uh, that they couldn't understand, that they couldn't grasp. He speaks to them very frankly and bluntly about what's going to happen. They should not be confused because he has spoken very clearly about what's about to happen in his life. But more often than not, uh, even though God speaks very clearly to us, we are the ones that seems to muddy the waters, don't we? We are kind of the ones that confuse that in our mind because surely it can't mean that. Surely God doesn't mean this whenever he said this. And this is what happens here with Peter. And we see there in verse 32 that Peter then, what? He takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. He's arguing with Jesus over whether or not this is the right plan. Peter believes that he knows what kind of Messiah Jesus should be. And he attempts to change Jesus' mind. He attempts to change the mission that Jesus has. And Peter is really attempting to control Jesus. And how often do we try to do the same thing? We try to control Jesus. We try to make him do what we want and and how we want him to do it. This is a form of idolatry. It's fashioning Jesus in our own likeness, with our own ideas, our own form. We think he should fit inside of this box, this, this mold in which we've made. And this is what Peter's trying to do, trying to push him into that and rebukes Jesus. Peter is rejecting the plan of God. He believes that there is no way for a, a king to, to, to go about his life in this kind of trajectory, this kind of way. You can't talk like that. You can't act like that. Jesus, if you keep telling people this, telling your disciples this, this is going to kill morale. Surely there's a better way to do things, Jesus. Now, have you had a conversation with God like this lately? Have you said things like, well, surely there's a better way, God. Have you recently said things like, well, isn't there just an easier way or a way that doesn't involve so much suffering? Well, these are dangerous and evil questions to ask of God. And we see that pointed out here with Jesus' response to Peter in the next verse. Look at verse 33. It says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't stay in conversation with Peter, isolated, alone with Peter, but he turns to the disciples as well, and he talks to all of them collectively. Now, why does he do this? Well, I, I believe it's because of the offense. The offense that's happened by Peter, it's, it's so grave, it's such a terrible thing that it needs to be made public. Now, maybe you would look at the text and you'd go, well, what great sin has been committed here? He was just trying to help Jesus out. He was just trying to help Jesus see that maybe this isn't the best way to go. How is that such a sinful thing? Well, in what's happened here, it's violating the first two commandments. This is what Peter did. This is the great sin. Peter has set himself over God. He has set himself as the one that gives the plans instead of God. 
which is breaking the first commandment of having no other gods before me. And then the next thing that happens in breaking the second commandment is that he has formed an idea about Jesus in his own mind, thinking that Jesus should fit inside of this form, this mold of Messiah, which is a form of idolatry, which is what the second commandment addresses. And so Peter's plan, it was one that he thought was right. He thought it was the, the right way to go about this, and he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus turns right back around and rebukes him in Peter's plan, it was the same kind of plan that Satan had for Jesus in the tempting of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 4. And if you see that, uh, that section of scripture there that talks about this temptation of Jesus. And in, in chapter 4, verse 10 of Matthew, it says this, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, or get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus tells Satan this when Satan is trying to get Jesus to fall out and worship him, as Satan has tried to give him the, the, the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus would just worship him. And Jesus responds with, get behind me. Get away from me, Satan. Be gone, Satan. And Peter, he's trying to get Jesus to do the same thing that Satan was trying to do trying to get Jesus to take the kingdoms of the world instead of going the path which God the Father had directed. Peter's doing the same thing that Satan was doing. And this is why the same exact words are used, the same words in the Greek are used here in Matthew chapter 4, 10, and what we see here in Mark 8. So why? Why was this such a, a terrible thing? Because, well... People, they love the plan. They love the plan for position. They love the plan for prosperity and, and possessions and prestige. And we've seen this play out through Mark so far. We've seen this with the Pharisees. We've seen this with Herod. We will see this later on in chapter 9 with the disciples as they are arguing about who's greater. This is the way people think. And this is the same type of things in which Satan has been trying to get Jesus to pursue. These type of things falling into this trap to pursue this kind of plan instead of the plan of the Heavenly Father. The plan of Satan is its so tempting. It's tempting us to buy into the splendors of this world, to look around the kingdoms and the things in which we could have and, and buy into these things. But what we hear from Jesus in verses 34 through 38, the next section we'll look at, is that Jesus calls us to reject it, which is what he's telling Peter to do to get his mind off the things of this world and onto the things of God. And Peter should know, he should know that God's ways are not like his, or not like ours. As God has spoken to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our ambitions, our plans, they should never be compared to God's. We are foolish to think that we have a better idea than God does. We should never think that my way is going to work out better than God's way. It never will. Our ambitions should not be compared to God's. His ways are not our ways, and we should praise Him for that fact. We should praise God that He does not interact with us like we would interact with us. Thank God that He does not 
treat us in a way in which we treat other people. Jesus told Peter that his thoughts were not on God's ways, but on man's. That his thoughts were man-centered and not God-centered. Now, let me ask you the question, where are your thoughts? Where are your ambitions? Where are your plans? Are they on the things of God, or have your thoughts been upon other things? Are they centered around other things instead of on God? Are they centered around your agenda, around your plans, or are they centered around God's? Would you say that Jesus would be approving of the way that you've organized your life, that it's been centered around him and around his message? Or would he have something else to say about the focus of your life, the plan of your life, the agenda of your life? Has it been centered on you or has it been centered on God? And this is, the, I think, one of the big questions that is asked here in really all the Bible of where are our thoughts? Where are our intentions? Where are our ambitions? And if we were really honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we have been acting far more like Peter than like Jesus. We have been giving too much focus on ourself and our own physical well-being and what we want instead of upon what God wants. Now, the second section that we're going to look at here, next verse, verse 34, through chapter 9, verse 1, this is a section that's dealing with really a paradox of following Jesus and what it means to be a true disciple. Let's read those together. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now, there's a, a quick transition again taking place here. Uh, and, and maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but in verse 34, it talks about Jesus calling the crowds to him with his disciples. So there's a transition that's taking place from this conversation with Peter to this conversation with the disciples to now the conversation has been brought in with the crowd as well. Which means what? It, it means that Jesus, he has a message for everyone, a message for anyone, as it says in verse 34, if anyone, a message for the disciple or not the disciple. And what is that message? Well, the message is, is simply this, that there's three elements that Jesus is pointing to about what it means to be a follower of him. Three elements of what makes up being a true follower. Or we could say, what's God's way of following? And the first is this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The first element is self-denial. What does that mean? It means stopping or quitting anything that's hindering your relationship with God. And, and some people might think, well, there's nothing wrong with my relationship with God. You know, I think we're, we're pretty good. Um, I've been a pretty good person. 
But my challenge would be to that person that believes themselves to be a good person is not to base that upon their opinion, but to base that upon God's opinion about their life. Now, how do we know God's opinion? Where do we get God's opinion from? Does it just come from just our time in prayer with Him? Or where does it come from? Well, it comes from His Word. It comes from learning and reading the Scriptures. We, we find out what God requires of us from His Word. And this is what Paul says in Romans when he talks about knowing what is right and wrong and it's discerned from reading the law of God. I know it's right because this is what God's Word says. I know it's wrong because I know God's Word has said it is wrong. And so we can't base our, our goodness upon our opinions or our friends' opinions, but upon God's opinion alone. And we find that from His Word. So if there are things that we discover from the Bible that are wicked, that are sinful, that are in our life, then we need to reject those things. Or another word in which we use for that is to repent of it, which means to cast it away, to turn away from it. We need to reject those things. But also let me remind you about what Jesus taught earlier in chapter 7, in, in regards to defilement and what defiles a person. It is not from the outside or the outside of the body that we are defiled, but it's from the inside. We are defiled from within. So the rejection of food, of drink, of activity, of pleasure, it's not the core problem, but it is the heart of every person. It is our corrupt motives, our corrupt thoughts. That's what needs to be rejected. That's what needs to be repented of. Now, maybe you need to reject food, not because food is the problem, but because you're a glutton. Maybe you need to reject alcohol, not because alcohol is the problem, but because you're a drunk. Maybe you need to reject that activity, that hobby, because you've become so consumed with it that it... It has consumed every part of your heart, every part of your mind, and that's all you ever think of. And you've made it into a god, into an idol. Why does Jesus tell us that we must deny ourselves? Because ourselves are the problem. Listen to what commentator R.T. France has to say about this in regards to this verse of Scripture. He says, What Jesus calls for here is thus a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination, and a call to join the march to the place of execution follows appropriately from this. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolates for Lent. It is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. The call of Jesus to deny ourselves is so backward, so contrary to what the world has to tell us, what the world has to preach to us. The, the world tells us to indulge ourselves, to give in to those impulses, and to follow our hearts. But what does Jesus teach? What is the first thing that Jesus teaches here is deny yourself. Don't listen to your evil, wicked heart. It is so backward, so different and this is what France has to say. This is the core message of what this means, of self-denial. We are the problem. It's not external things. It is us. This is why the self needs to be denied, because the self is wicked. And this leads us to the second thing. 
that Jesus teaches, and that is take up His cross. We are to deny ourselves, but then to take up our cross. Now, this statement, it's very familiar to us because we're reading it with a hindsight bias to it. We're looking back through history. We know what's happened to Jesus. But what's interesting about when Jesus speaks this to these people, to these crowds and to his disciples, is that he has not told them this bit of information. He's not shared with them that he's going to die on the cross. And so for them, this would be a shock to hear that Jesus is telling them to pick up a Roman cross and follow him. They would be scratching their heads, I'm sure, and wondering, what does he really mean by this? They would definitely understand that he is calling them to suffer, to, to even die. And this is, it's a very real possibility that these people, and as we see to the disciples, most of them did suffer and did die. Not all of them died on the cross, but they did lose their physical life. And this is what Jesus was calling them into. Now, to carry a cross in, the Romans, in Roman times would mean that you were rejected by the culture. You were rejected by Rome. You were sentenced to die. You were opposed to the authority, and the authority was going to show their power and you were rejected by them. It would also mean that you would be shamed. You'd be stripped naked. You'd be hung up up there publicly. It'd be shameful. It also means that you would suffer terribly, and you would ultimately die. Nobody escaped this. And we see this even with the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the two thieves that are on each side of him where they break their legs. Nobody did survive this. Either you, you suffocated to death or they would speed up that process because you were taking too long to die. They would break your legs or in Jesus' case where they would stab him with the spear to see whether or not he really was dead. So these things are, are what Jesus is saying. You must be willing to endure to follow me. It's that kind of bearing of a cross that he is calling these people to. And so taking up your cross is it's directly related to self-denial. There's no separation between these two things. They're intimately connected. You are unable to take up your cross if you're not denying yourself. The self does not want to be rejected by the culture. It doesn't want to be opposed to those around them. Your self doesn't want that. The self doesn't want to be shamed publicly or privately. The self, it doesn't want to suffer. The self doesn't want to die. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to suffer these things. People make statements all the time that take these words out of context and they say things like, well, I'm married to this guy and he's my cross to bear. No, that's not the case. Your spouse is not your cross to bear. You're taking that out of context. It doesn't mean that at all. To bear your cross means that you're willing to go through great opposition, great rejection because of your love for Jesus. Not because, well, you know, you're just struggling to get along with somebody and they feel like a burden to you. No, it is directly related to your love of Jesus that you are willing to be shamed because of your love for Jesus, you are willing to suffer affliction and much pain, whether it be physically or emotionally, because of Jesus, and you're willing to even die, if necessary, because of your love for Jesus. This is what it means to take up your cross. It's not related to, well, just difficult people in your life, but it's directly related 
through your love for Jesus and what happens as a result of that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, pastor, uh, writer, he wrote this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And honestly, if you would go back and you would read about Bonhoeffer's life during World War II, you would see that he is a prime example, a great example of what it means to bear your cross for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if you read through his life, you would see that he suffered. He suffered under the authority of the Germans. He, he suffered much in way of imprisonment, and he was even executed. He was a man that gives a great example of what does it mean to come and die, to, to carry your cross. And I would encourage you to, to do some more research into who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. The third thing in which <clears throat> Jesus teaches in verse 34 is this word, follow. It says, uh, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, to be a follower of Jesus involves suffering. We've already established that. If the Messiah is going to suffer, as what he has already told them back in verse 31, then what could be expected by the follower? Suffering. Now, Jesus has repeatedly uh, taught this, and he will repeatedly teach this some more, through the Gospels, of this is what's required of following him. In John chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So if you, if you have an incorrect view of the Messiah and, and who the Messiah is and how the Messiah is going to work, then you're going to have a, a misunderstanding, a completely incorrect view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So if we don't get Jesus right, we don't really understand who Jesus really is, then it's really hard for us to follow him accurately, isn't it? Because we think that his footsteps are different. Because we, we've maybe fashioned him in a different way than who he truly is. We need to be careful here in this idea of following. Following Jesus looks radical and ridiculous to the world. Maybe whenever you've... Uh, had conversations with your friends about the cost of following Jesus, about financially or relationally or physically, and your worldly friends, they kind of scratch their head and go, I can't believe that, that this is what you've been doing, that this is who you've been following, and you've done all this because of this man. Maybe that's been your experience, or maybe you've had an experience where you, you share your stories of sacrifice with people, with your worldly friends, and there's really no difference between your sacrifices and theirs. That your sacrifices seem to be a lot like their sacrifices, and they're not believers. And I think that's pretty telling of whether or not we are really following Jesus or not. I think there there should be some things that are very distinct about the sacrifices which we're making in following Jesus. Not just that, well, you know, I had to give up Netflix this month because things got tight, but... You've given your, your life to Him. You've entrusted yourself to Him. And Jesus starts to build upon something here in verses 35 through 38. In these next four verses that we have in this, in this passage, it clarifies for us what self-denial, what cross-carrying, and what following Jesus really is. In verse 35, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. 
Jesus is not telling us to blindly obey him and gives us no reasons for doing this. No, Jesus gives us a foundation to build on of why we should deny ourselves, why we should take up our cross, why we should follow him. And a Christ follower is not a mindless robot who who hasn't counted the cost of following him, but has examined closely, what is this really going to cost me? What does this sacrifice really involve? And what happens in that is that we view him as more valuable than anything else in the universe. And so there in verse 35, again, this it's this paradox that I mentioned earlier. And what a paradox is, is that it is a seemingly contradictory statement, but upon further examination, you find it to be true. And so of what Jesus has said here, of for whoever saves his whoever whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This seems to be a paradox or or a, a contradiction, which is really just a paradox. And so what Jesus is simply saying is trying to preserve your life or soul, as the Greek would indicate, by your own means will result in losing your life or soul. If you are trying to save or preserve your life on your own means, your own way, you will ultimately lose it. Saving your soul involves losing it. And this is this this paradox of what Jesus is saying, which means that you should be entrusting your soul to Jesus Christ to save it. If you're trying to do it your way, you will lose it. But if you give it to him, you lose it to him, you entrust it to him, you will save it. Now, notice also what's here in verse 35, this phrase that Jesus uses, for my sake, for my sake. This is the key to self-denial. This is the key to cross-bearing. This is the key to following Jesus. It's not enough to be a good person. There are many people who believe that they're going to be just fine when they die and when they stand before the throne of judgment. And they believe that, well, everything they've done in their life, it's gotten to this point where they're going to be just okay with God. They've given thousands, if not millions of dollars to help the poor. They've built orphanages to care for the the sick. They have been very religious in their church attendance and in their service. They have been a good neighbor. They've done everything right in this life, but... All of it has been done in vain. Why? Because none of it was done for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. All of their efforts were done apart from true faith in Jesus Christ. And on the day of judgment, they will hear these words from Jesus. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All of what we do must be done for the sake of Christ, not for our own sake. And this is what Jesus means by trying to save your life and losing it. You try to do all these things in order to earn points, to to outweigh the bad on the scale of heaven that doesn't exist. And we think that we're gaining something when we're, we're not. Notice what follows for my sake. He says, and the Gospels. The message of Jesus is worth being rejected, shamed, suffer, and even die for. It's not just this man, but it's the message in which he carried, in which he preached, in which he was giving to people that they need to repent and trust in him. It is this message that Paul would die for, that Peter would die for, 
It is the message which we should have deep into our hearts and our minds that should influence our mindset and our lifestyle of how we live, how we think. It's this message of Jesus, this gospel, this good news that we cling to and we fight for. Uh, another foundation which Jesus gives us is in the next verse, verse 36. He says, For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is there in this world that is worth your soul? What is it? If you can make a list even right now, like what would you put on that list that would be worth your soul? Go ahead, write something down. What would be worth your soul? Hopefully you haven't written anything down. Not because you're lazy, but because you have nothing to write down. You can't compare that. And this is the point that Jesus is making. We use this saying all the time, right? Well, they sold their soul to the devil. But we wouldn't usually use that in reference to ourselves, would we? No, because we, we would not think of ourselves as acting just like Esau, selling our birthright for a bowl of soup. But don't we do this all the time? Don't we buy into things that will not fulfill, that will not come through, but we're so short-sighted that we, we buy into those things, just like Esau did. And we sold our soul for a momentary pleasure. People are drawn to the splendors of this world. As John writes in 1 John chapter 2, he talks about three things. He talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We are drawn to these things, tempted by these things, And these are also in reference to what Jesus was tempted with back in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus rejects all those things. He does what he is telling others to do, and that is to deny self, to take up a cross, and to follow after the path of God. Don't buy in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Don't fall for the tricks of the devil. The foundational principle from this verse is this. That gaining everything in this world is gaining nothing in eternity. What do you gain? What do you gain that can be compared to eternity? There's nothing. Look at the next foundational point here in verse 37. It says, For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now this foundation that Jesus gives means that there will be nothing that a person can bargain with on their day of judgment. It will not matter how good you've been or how much good you've done or how much money you have given. It will not matter how religious you've been or or how kind you've been to somebody. There's absolutely nothing that you will be able to use to argue or to leverage your way into heaven. There's nothing you have to give. There's nothing you have to bargain with. The only way that you get into the kingdom of God is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Christ. He is the one which you must entrust yourself to fully. He is the one that you must give yourself to. And if you do not do that, then there is not a uh, pass-go. It is only go directly to the eternal jail of hell. There's nothing you can trade for your soul's salvation. It is only Jesus that can save you. There is nothing else that you can trade here. Now, let me take you to the fourth foundation that Jesus gives, and that's in verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those who are ashamed of Jesus and his message will not make it. They will not make it. Again, having a right understanding of the Messiah is a is so necessary for us in following this foundational principle. Some people have a view of Jesus that it's it's just a, a peace and love kind of Jesus, which is not an accurate picture of who he really is. They believe that Jesus was all about unity and just loving everybody equally, which is just not the case as you read the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus was very divisive. Jesus did not love people equally as we would like to think. Jesus says here that a follower will not be ashamed of him or the message in which he brings. And the message wasn't always easy. There's a moment where Jesus, most of his followers left because he was being divisive in what he said. And so when Jesus talks about following him and what that means and being ashamed of him, uh, it's so important for us to understand who he really is and that we're getting that accurate and right. So there's only one God. And this is what Jesus taught. There's only one God. It's only through this one God in which we can be saved. That people should worship him and him alone. But people haven't done that. They've worshiped other things. And because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness, they, they need to repent. They need to reject those things. And they need to trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Only highlighting the, the gentle and the loving words and actions of Jesus is being ashamed of him and his message. You and I, along with the world, we must have the whole Christ or we have no Christ at all. We have to have the whole of who Jesus is, not just the pieces that we like, not just the bits that that make us feel better or that are more gentle to this group of people than this group, but we need to have the whole Christ. A follower of Jesus cannot and will not be ashamed of him. Now, this doesn't mean that there might be weak moments where you just fail to have the boldness of what you should have had, but it does mean that the trajectory of your life is living unashamedly for Jesus, that you are not ashamed to be called a Christian. You are not ashamed to be called a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not ashamed to share that gospel message of salvation with other people. Now, let me take the very last verse that we have in our text that we've looked at today. Let me just read it one more time for you. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is likely predicting what we will see immediately in chapter 9, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, where Peter, James, and John, they're there with Jesus, and we'll talk about that um, soon. But I think it's also foreshadowing the resurrection of Jesus, which he's told them earlier back in verse 31, that he's going to rise again. And this is the display of this power of God. But I think also it's it's possibly foreshadowing the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in Jerusalem, again displaying the power of God and the kingdom working. So these people that are there that Jesus is speaking to, this prediction that he gives, it comes true. Whether it be any of those three things, because we have people in that group that will experience all three of these things. 
And so, again, Jesus' words can be trusted. Now, in kind of closing, I know at the end of a sermon, there, in the Baptist realm anyways, we come to a point of invitation. Invitation where maybe sometimes a preacher will stand at the front and, and he will tell people to just come to Jesus as you are. But I think there's a grave misunderstanding whenever that gets said. And people completely misunderstand what that even means. And maybe even the preacher misunderstands what that even means. Come to Jesus as you are. The invitation that Jesus gives, and the one that we have just saw here in these verses, is a very different kind of invitation, isn't it? It's not an invitation to come as you are, but it's a come and reject all that you are. Reject everything in which you are. That self that is so evil and corrupt It needs rejected. It needs denied. You need to take up your cross. You need to follow me. Lay down your agenda, your way of doing things, and follow only my way. So, yes, we we come to him as what we are, which is wicked, which is sinful, which is broken. We come to him as what we are because we know we cannot clean the dark stains of sin out of our soul. As Jesus has already laid this foundation for us, why do you need to deny yourself? Why do you need to take up your cross and follow me? Because you cannot gain anything. There's nothing you can trade for your soul. There's nothing that's worth your soul. And so you must give yourself to him fully and completely. As Jesus said, there is nothing you can give or trade or or make a payment for your soul. You must come to Jesus humbly and broken or you will not be accepted. I hope you've done that. You can only follow Jesus based upon his terms, not yours. There is no negotiation to be made with the King of Kings. He does not negotiate. There is nothing you can offer him that is going to change his requirements of self-denial, of cross-bearing, of following him in, in full submission. He does not change those. You must reject your ways, your ideas, your plans, and you must entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. This is God's way. This is the only way. Know who He is, but also see how He has brought about salvation for you. He's given a salvation to you by you being humbled before Him, by coming to Him in the brokenness of what you are, by coming to Him in self-denial, in bearing your cross, and committing yourself to follow Him in every way. I hope you've done that. If you haven't, then... Hopefully this, today you've been able to, to put the pieces together and understand that, that Jesus can save you. But you must come to Him. You must come to Him with brokenness, with humility. You must give yourself completely to Him. Would you join me in prayer? God, I do thank You that You are a God of compassion. But You're also a God of of justice. You are a God that does not let any escape your wrath. That God, all of us will one day stand before you. And Lord, it is my prayer that those that are watching this, that they know you. 
that you would not say to them, depart from me. But God, they, they have been denying themselves. They are carrying their cross. They are following you. Lord, I pray that if, if somebody is hearing this, watching this, and they don't know you, Lord, that they would give themselves to you today. Lord, I also want to ask that you would encourage us as believers as we look at these foundations that you've given us, that we would follow those, follow what you've shown us, what you've told us. We would be challenged today. And again, we would submit ourselves to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.